If I may begin by reading a passage you'll recognize, Galatians chapter number 6. It says, beginning at verse number 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So I've entitled the lesson, In Due Season, and tonight we're going to be looking at the principles of sowing and reaping and seeking to make a few applications. Now, one of the reasons why we're considering sowing and reaping tonight is because Scripture tells us that at the Festival of Tabernacles, that it ought to be a time of harvest and a time of reaping and a time where we're thinking about some of the principles involved with gathering a harvest. So may I read for you just to attune ourselves to one of the themes of the Festival of Tabernacles from Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'm going to begin at verse number 13. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, after that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son, and thy daughter, and thy manservant, thy maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose. Because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase. That's our harvest. That's our harvest. The Lord shall bless thee in all thine increase, and in all the works of thine hands. Therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. So tonight we're going to be looking at sowing, reaping, and what kind of a harvest we can be looking forward to in our lives. And there are several different aspects of harvest that we're going to consider. Now, our primary text is going to be taken from Mark chapter number 4. So I would like everyone in the congregation, if you don't mind, if you do not object, please turn to the Gospel of Mark and be prepared to stand with me. We're going to go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter number 4. And I'd like everyone, if you would please, to open your Bibles. And here in a moment, we're going to be standing and we're going to read verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. We're going to stand in, for the, in honor of the Word of God. And we'll read with men in verse 1 and ladies in verse 2 and so forth. So please be standing at this time. I hope if you have the energy, please find the energy if you think you can. Open up to Mark 4, 1 through 20. Let's begin. Men, if you'd lead out and ladies, you follow. And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it. And fell by a stony ground, where it had not much earth, and came immediately sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, 
and because it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Another fell on good ground, and did yield, and sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And these one, they that were about him with the twelve, asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see, and not perceive, and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted, and their sins and he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word, and these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. But when they have heard, and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are stoned on the stony ground. And they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Or root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction comes, for his sake, immediately they are offended. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word. These are they which are sown on good ground, such hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Thank you so much, and you may be seated. I thank you for your participation. Thank you, thank you. Many of you are very familiar with this parable. It is probably one of the best known parables, and for many good reasons. The purpose tonight is not to expound and tear this parable apart in, a, in an analysis, but just to try to look at the broad strokes and then move on to some other areas. So we have, of course, we have the wayside seed in which the fowls come and devour it. We have the stony ground where the seed springs up quickly, the thorns where it is choked and it brings no fruit, and then, of course, we have the good ground. Jesus goes on in this allegory to explain for us in verses 15 and follows telling us that the wayside seed, which is like falling on a hard pathway, Satan comes, and before there's anything good that can happen, the seed, the Word of God, is taken away, and so it does not take root in their hearts. And of course, then, the stony ground, where it springs up quickly, but the ground is thin, the soil is thin, and because it doesn't have um, the moisture and the depth of the earth, it does not last, and persecution takes these people away. And the thorny ground is where there's lots of other weeds and things growing, and so there's many distractions. And that corresponds in this allegory to the deceitfulness of riches, the cares and the activities of the world, which just capture us and kind of whisk us away. And finally, the good ground, where the fruit comes 30, 60, or 100-fold. Now, Many of you are familiar with the four traditional rules of sowing and reaping. Now, we're going to begin there. 
We'll take just a few moments to run through the four traditional rules of sowing and reaping. If you have not reflected on these in the past, they're worthy of your reflection. So some of you younger people might not have be familiar with these four rules. So let's just cast our eyes upon these four simple principles now that I've laid out in that outline that's before you. I will not probably take time to read the Bible passages that are there, but we'll refer to them. The first simple principle goes like this, you reap what you sow. That's, that's plain, it's simple, many of us have heard that before, maybe we've heard that many times. So you, you, what you plow in uh, is what you get out. And in Matthew 7, it speaks of if, you're, if you've got uh, men heart, harvest uh, figs of thorns. If you, if you planted thorns or weeds, you're not going to get a nice fruit uh, harvest of figs. So that's you reap what you sow. What you put in is what you're going to get out. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Second, the second rule is you reap where you sow. Where you sow. So the location, the geography, the people involved, that's where you're going, to, you're going to reap, where you sow. Number three, the third traditional one is you reap in proportion to what has been sown. You reap in proportion to what has been sown. An excellent example of this principle in action is found in Genesis 22. You may recall that story where God asks Abraham to take his only son Isaac and take him up to a certain mount, Mount Moriah, and there offer him as a sacrifice. A a rather shocking bit of instruction. Scripture indicates that Moses had no significant hesitation and did exactly what God asked, or at least he was going to, and uh, God stopped him at the last moment. But because Abraham was sowing so much into his heavenly Father, he, he, he was giving it his absolute all. It was his only son that God rewarded him proportionally. And I might say that because of this, let me just read out of Genesis 22 and verse 16 and 17. Because he had sown so deeply, so he, he was all in, absolutely all in for God. And God rewards him by, with these words. He says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply, the, multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven on the sand of the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So because he was willing to give up his only son, instead God gave him more children than any man ever to have lived. So that's the idea of proportion. And finally, as we've already read in Galatians chapter number 6, you reap you reap in a different season. In due season you will reap. Abraham did not reap very soon at all. The harvest that Abraham has are all of his many ample descendants centuries and centuries later. So you reap in a different season. I'd say most of us probably aren't going to have to wait for centuries to 
find a, a reaping of what we have sown. But I'd like to just take these four traditional rules of sowing and reaping and reflect on them. We reap what we sow, you reap where you sow, you reap in proportion to what's been sown, and you reap in a different season. Some of you are familiar with these. I'd like to shift gears, though, and we're going to look at several different areas of life. We're really going to look at three different areas of life this evening, of lives, aspects of life that all of us share. First, we're going to take a look at our nation, and we're going to consider what we've been reaping and what we've been sowing. Well, I guess the other way around. We're going to look at what we've been sowing, and we're going to find out what we can anticipate reaping. Amen. Then we're going to look at the church life in America. Have a quick look at the life of, 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 of churches and Christianity in America. What have we been sowing? What have we been reaping? What can we anticipate in that respect? Then we're going to look at a few things regarding ourselves. We're just going to have a short time of examination. And you can reflect on maybe what you have been sowing, what you maybe have been reaping, and what you ought to be sowing. And you can be thinking about how this may develop as the years pass in your life. Particularly if you're young, you should be thinking really hard about what you're going to be sowing in the youth of your life. So we're going to look at those three elements. And finally, we're going to just take a, have some concluding thoughts respecting, respecting what we might be able to anticipate for the future. Now, as we get started here, let's go to the second portion of, um, of our discussion. And I want to talk about our nation. We're going to talk about our American Republic. I'd like to just apply these general rules to our American Republic. And we're going to start with just a very simple question. What have we been recently sowing in our nation? What have we been sowing? Now, the life that we have in this republic is a, is, is our, the life that we collectively share is uh, from a point of view of, uh, of, of um, citizenship is our, 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 our political life together, our social life together, uh, what we as citizens of this nation, how we interact one with another, and what we're investing into this nation as citizens. So to give a little evaluation, I'm going to take a little liberty tonight, and I'm going to turn this congregation into a classroom, and we're going to have a quiz. So I'm getting ready to ask you now 10 questions, and I want you, if you care to, to write down what you think the answers to these 10 questions are. You've got a little space there in that paper in front of you. So let's have a, let's have a quiz, shall we? Now before I ask the first question, I want to set this up a little bit. First of all, I ran into a quotation that I think sort of sets up where we... No, I'll save that quotation. We'll save that for the end. Tell you what, let's, let's look at it in this respect. Uh, this quiz, these ten questions now, I would like to tell you where I got them from. These ten questions came from something I ran across on a, a little website called Prager University. And these 10 questions are questions from a U.S. citizenship test. So if you were to come to this country and you are not a natural-born citizen and you wanted to become a citizen, these are the questions you would be asked, or they have used these questions in the past. So are you ready for your 10 questions? Now, these questions are simple, straightforward. They're not trick questions. Don't overthink it. Just... Listen to the question, 
They're all multiple choice, and make your choice. Don't overthink it. Just put down what you believe is right. And then we'll kind of see how you folks compare to the citizens of our land at large, all right? And we'll kind of use this as a springboard to evaluate where we're at in this land. All right, so these are citizenship questions, questions about American history, questions about uh, American government, a little bit about American geography, just about your nation. What do you know about your nation? Do you know much about your nation? All right, here we go. Question number one. Who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Was it Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, or Alexander Hamilton? Who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton. All right, that's question one. Does everyone have their answer down? All righty. The answer is Thomas Jefferson. Question two. Who was the first president of the United States? Was it John Adams, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, or Benjamin Franklin? Who was the first president of the United States? John Adams, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin. One of those four. The answer is George Washington. Question number three. Who was the United States president during World War I? Who was the United States president during World War I? Was it Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, or John F. Kennedy? Now, for the sake of uh, keeping all this going here, keep your answers private. Don't blurt the answer out. All right. The president during World War I was... Woodrow Wilson. Question number four. When was the United States Constitution written? Was it 1776, 1787, 1796, or 1804? The question was, when was the United States Constitution written? 1776, 1787, 1796, or 1804? And the answer is 1787. Question five. How many years is the term of a U.S. senator elected to serve? How many years is the term of a United States senator elected to serve? Is it two years, four years, six years, or eight years? Two, four, six, or eight? The answer is six. Half done. Question six. How many amendments are there to the U.S. Constitution? How many amendments are there to the U.S. Constitution? Question number six is what we're on. Here are your options. 10, 22, 27, 36. 10, 22, 27, 36. The answer is 27. Question seven. Which of these states does not border Canada? Which of these states does not border Canada? All right, are you ready? Now, I don't want to make you feel bad, but I think most people learn their states in about fifth and sixth grade, so let's see what you can do. You've got six choices. Which does not border Canada? 
Alaska, Maine, North Dakota, Michigan, Montana, Oregon. Alaska, Maine, North Dakota, Michigan, Montana, Oregon, which does not border Canada, and the answer is Oregon. Oregon does not border Canada. Question number eight. What territory did the United States buy from France in 1803? Shh. The options, you've got six choices. So what territory did the United States buy from France in 1803? Your choices are Louisiana, Texas, California, Florida, Maine, Alaska. Texas, excuse me, Louisiana, Texas, California, Florida, Maine, Alaska, and the purchase in 1803 was Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. Question number nine. According to the Constitution, which branch of government makes federal law? Is it legislative, executive, judicial? According to the Constitution, which branch of federal government, sorry, which branch of government is supposed to make federal law? Legislative, executive, judicial, and the answer is, of course, legislative. Question 10, the final question. Which is not one of the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Constitution? Which is not one of the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Constitution? Speech, religion, assembly, press, petition the government, or bear arms? Speech, religion, assembly, press, petition the government, or bear arms? And the answer is, bear arms. That is the Second Amendment. Second Amendment. My guess is probably many of you got that one right. Now, tally up how many you got correct, and we'll see how we compare to your fellow citizens around the country. So it turns out that a passing grade is six correct. You don't have to have all ten, don't have to have nine, eight, seven. six is enough to have a passing grade, all right? Six of ten is a passing grade. Now, from the point of view of a history teacher, I kind of thought the test was easy, but then that's just me. All right, now, the point of it is, is this. Let me give you the, how others do. If you come to this country as a lawful immigrant and you choose to apply for citizenship, this is the test you need to pass. Well, it turns out that 90% of legal immigrants pass this exam. 90%. They, apparently they give you a booklet, send you home, and you come back and you take the test. All right. This is in 2020, by the way. 2020, 90% of our legal immigrants passed. That's pretty good. Now, U.S. adults in general that pass this test, the general population of the United States adults that pass this test is 30%. 30%. Remember, you only have to have 6 out of 10 to pass. 30%. Now, the percentage of public high school students that passed this exam in 2020 is 3%. 3% of public high school students passed this exam in 2020. Six of ten. Now, I, I find that pretty shocking. I was, I was rather floored. 
for a basis of comparison, and I think this is, this is what I'm driving at, as we consider the 3% and we use, find a basis of comparison about times gone by. A very similar test has been given in past years. Now, I don't know how many people were alive in 1950, but in 1950, the percentage of public high school students that passed this, uh, this very similar exam was 60%. 60%. So in a lifetime, 70 years, public education, <laughs> the gift of public education has gone from a 60% passing of a citizenship exam to 3%. So this gives us a real sense of as citizens, as citizens who are, should know a bit about our history, a little bit about our nation, a little bit about our government, after all, we're supposed to vote and we're supposed to make decisions that we would presume are hopefully somewhat informed decisions. I think this gives us a pretty uh, sobering sense of what kind of a harvest we have regarding the American Republic. In my assessment, just in general, before we move on to the next area of examination in terms of reaping and sowing, and this grieves me. I'm telling you, this makes me really sad, but I've been sad a lot, so I'm sort of, my, my time of grief is gradually as the years pass passing <laughs> but in my assessment the American Republic is dying Amen. it is dying I think we cannot reasonably expect with the what we've been sowing into it as citizens to give us any kind of fruit that is useful or hopeful So that being the case, if that's the case, if you would agree with that general assessment, that this is our prima facie evidence that the na a nation of citizens has no knowledge base with which to make any kind of informed choices, where does that leave us? I mean, bear in mind, these are not complicated questions. We're not asking questions like, name three battles that turned the tide in the American Revolution, or what were the causes of the American Civil War, you know, a very controversial and difficult topic, or, or what were the consequences of the Great Depression, or something of this nature. These are very basic questions. Who is the first president of the United States? <laughs> Relatively basic questions here. All right. So the, the harvest season for America, I think, is coming due. And I don't think this is a shock to many of you, um, but it, it's still painful. It's still painful for those who have any age on them, for, for many of us who have a little age on us. Amen. Because there are some here who not only remember 1983, but they remember 1963 before the Cultural Revolution when things were very different in this nation. And it's hard to imagine for many of us. So let's look in another direction now. Let's shift gears slightly. Let's apply these rules now to Christianity in America. What has been sown? What have we been sowing in Christianity? Well, we don't have another quiz. What we have instead, I'm just going to give you the short list of what I think are some of the most important 
elements of what's been going on in Christianity in the United States of America over the same time frame going back from the last 60 years or so. What's different between Christianity in the United States in 1950 or 1960 as to compared to 2023? Well, I think we've got quite an indictment against mainstream Christianity since the 1960s. The four major points of indictment that I'd like to call your attention to are as follows. We now have different races that have been integrated within congregations. Race mixing is powerful and is ubiquitous in Christian churches across our land. And if you find a church that does not have any non-Caucasians in it, most of the time it's only because there aren't any non-white folk who live in the immediate vicinity. If they were there, if they lived there, they would be welcome. So different races have been integrated within the congregations of our nation. Number two, male leadership has been steadily abandoned. Male leadership has been steadily abandoned over the same time frame. In 1960, I dare say it would be difficult to find a lady preacher. They are common as the leaves on the tree practically now. And it's not necessarily all the ladies' fault. So, um, gentlemen, I don't want to be too uh, unfair to you, but I, I think I know of several cases in which I believe the, the, the real dynamic that has happened is that men have not led the church. That is to say, the men stopped attending, the men stopped going, the men stopped being involved, and the only people that were left were ladies, and because the ladies didn't want to see the church doors close, a lady says, well, I'll fill in. Yep. And you say, hey, that's not, that's not the way I've seen it happen. I have. Yep. I have. So men, we've, we share blame in that as well. It's not just feminist women who are charging to the front and pushing the men out of the pulpit. The men have not been present. The men did not step up to the pulpit when there was a vacancy. Instead, they stayed home. Item three. The false Israel has been exalted and a Zionist worldview has been promoted. And item four. Homosexuals have been both celebrated and lifted into leadership. And this also is running pretty strong in many, many parts of our nation in the general church world. So with this indictment, we could ask ourselves, okay, what kind of a harvest do we have in the United States of America regarding the general Christian world? Well, I think Isaiah chapter 1 applies at least I think this verse is appropriate. In short, Christianity America is sick, and the illness might be mortal. It's very sick, and it might be mortal. Now, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5, starts like this. It says, Isaiah says, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And it goes on to describe other elements that are missing. But Isaiah is simply trying to draw and paint a picture, a metaphor of a sick and putrefying body. 
a body that is corrupt, a body that has got sores from head to toe, that's got putrefying sores as if they have leprosy or something, that is the state of Christianity today in this country and across the Western world. If it can be believed, it's worse in other portions of the Western world than it is the United States of America, which is, again, yeah, that's hard to believe. Now, as we continue a little bit, I'd like to shift gears, and I'd like to think about sowing and reaping. If we look at the nation and we say, all right, so for the last two generations we've been sowing uh, uh, foolishness and all kinds, just, just, just all the wrong things into the youth of America, and because we've been sowing all the wrong things into the youth of America, they, so too many of them just have what they know is not worth knowing. <laughs> and um, uh, there's, there's so much that they don't know that they should. And then if we consider the churches, we find this a very similar situation. We could look in, in another direction, and we could consider this. We might say to ourselves, all right, well, what about you and I? And let's just, just completely shift gears and think about a, a little bit of self-examination. We think about sowing and reaping, and we think about what kind of a harvest that we might have in our own lives. I've got seven brief questions for you. Question number one, the first question is very close, is a question that only you can answer, and it's a question that really I think every one of us should answer. You should answer it right now if you haven't, aren't able to, if you haven't thought about it already. So the first question is this, what are you sowing in your own heart? What are you plowing into your own heart? The soil of your own heart, what are you putting into it? There's a lot we can put into our hearts. Now, the word heart in Scripture usually is referring just in general to the inner man. It's referring really to the mind. The, the Scripture doesn't, isn't, doesn't, isn't, doesn't really try typically using the word heart to divide between your brain, that is the thinking part of you, in contrast to the emotional part of you and so forth. So, Psalm 119 says this, beginning at verse 10. It says, With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That tells us what we ought to be sowing into our heart is God's word. And that it's an abundantly valuable thing. And if you can't answer that question in, in, in the affirmative to say that I do my very best to try to spend time in the word of God and sow that into my mind and my heart, then you're going to make wrong decisions. That's as simple as I can say it. You're going to make wrong, you're not going to know that they're wrong decisions. You're going to think they're good decisions. You're going to think they're sensible and wise and practical and good, but they're going to be in error because you simply don't know the Word of God. You don't know it the way you should. Psalm 37, 31 says, The law of his God is in his heart, None of his steps shall slide. None of his steps shall slide. Now the word slide there means it conveys an image of someone stumbling and slipping as if you're walking on a slippery, icy sidewalk and you slip. But you didn't plan on slipping. You planned on walking briskly to your destination. But instead you slid. You, your foot did slide and you fell. And you had some sort of a calamity. And it's because God's word and God's law is not in your heart. So it's of paramount importance 
And every young person in here needs to just get this. If you take nothing away from this Bible study tonight, except the idea that I need to get God's Word in my heart every day, then that's good. You've taken away a valuable point. Not, not a new point, not a point you've never heard before, but a very valuable point. So that's the first area of self-examination. What are you sowing in your own heart? Second, Scripture teaches us that all of us have routine tasks and labors of life. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 gives us a little bit of advice that's not terribly profound, or at least it shouldn't be to a, a sound Christian person. But the question is this, what are you sowing into your routine labors? What are you sowing into your routine labors? Scripture says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, this is not a new or revolutionary idea. I remember giving a Bible study and expounding in this area. It's an, the old, it's an old Puritan principle that it doesn't matter what your profession is, you do it to the glory of God. Every routine task you do, taking out the garbage or anything better, you're going to do it to the glory of God. If it be possible to, do, to take the garbage out to the glory of God, well, then do it. But whether you're an electrician or you're a teacher, or it doesn't matter if you're taking care of the kids, if you're raising children, if you're cleaning up after someone, if you're swabbing the tables at the cafeteria, you do it to the glory of God whatsoever you do. What are you sowing into your routine labors? Number three, the third area. The third area. Are you cultivating a personal ministry? Are you cultivating a personal ministry? You know, it's another general principle of, of Christian practice and action that any, every one of us ought to be, shall we say, some sort of a minister. Now, the word minister is not probably what most of you are thinking. When we use the word minister in modern context, you're thinking of a guy like me or Pastor Gaiman or Pastor Jennings or Pastor Ramsey. You say, he's a minister, I'm not. He has a ministry, I don't. And that's really not what the word minister. The word minister just means someone who serves. That's all it means. Someone who serves. And in our nation, we had a, the concept, once upon a time, we still use the phrase, but we call them public servants. Because based on the idea of a republic, those who are selected to make decisions for the group and to manage the affairs of the group are to be serving those who asked them and put them in, gave them that authority and that power. So they're thus public servants. But all of us ought to be serving. All of us are ministers. All of us have, ought to have some kind of a ministry. Now, it doesn't mean that the ministry has to be in this building. Some may have a music ministry. Some may have a preaching ministry. Some may have a ministry of service that is... Uh, not, not seen, but maybe it's important. Maybe it's a ministry of keeping things in repair. Maybe it's a ministry that uh, is it, 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 simply as simple as just cleaning things or, or, or helping people. The word ministry is something that uh, all, all of us ought to, to, to reflect upon, and, and we ask ourselves, are you cultivating a personal ministry that is some capacity in which you further the kingdom of God? Some of you have other unique gifts some of you are people who are outgoing and talkative and sanguine and, and charismatic, and so you have a ministry of evangelism. Amen. Not because you're quote-unquote an evangelist, <laughs> but you simply have a ministry of evangelism because God's given you the gifts to talk and 
and, 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 and encourage and bless and chat and just bring people in. So I have no idea what gifts and talents you've got, but you've got gifts and talents, and if you're not using them to the glory of God, then you're just not, you're just not running down the right track, ladies and gents. And so while we think, uh, we spend a lot of our time thinking about the failures of America. We spend a lot of our time thinking about the failures of the church world, and, but we've got to spend a little time thinking about the potential failures we have right within ourselves and our own shortcomings. So um, next we have, well, uh, here's an example. Romans 16, 3, I'll just read this real quick. You know, Paul, at the end of many of his epistles, he gives a whole bunch of names. Those, are all, those names are all interesting people, no doubt. We know only a little bit about a few of them. But occasionally, we have a little glimmer. So Romans 16.3 gives a little glimmer when it, Paul writes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Jesus Christ. Amen. And they're mentioned in another epistle as well. So these two people were, were not only friends of Paul, but they helped and assisted Paul in his evangelization, and they were instrumental in making his life and his ministry what it was. So next we have, what are you sowing into your congregation? What are you sowing into your congregation? Hebrews 10.25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Okay, so all of us ought to have some kind of a congregation. If it's not this congregation, well, I hope you have a congregation somewhere. I hope you have some sort of fellowship. I hope you have, hope you have something people you work with, and that, or rather you fellowship with, and you study with, and you worship with, uh, beyond yourself and your spouse and your immediate family. All of us ought to have something that resembles a congregation. Now, of course, we also have this one. As we get a little closer in, there's some other elements. We have, I'd like to call your attention to what are you sowing into your marriage? What are you sowing into your marriage? Are you sowing the thorns and thistles into your marriage, or are you sowing the kind of fruit that's going to yield grapes and figs and other delightful fruit. <laughs> what are you sowing into your marriage? Next, we have, what are you sowing into your family relationships? And finally, we'll close this portion of our discussion with the last question, that is, what legacy are you preparing for your descendants? What legacy are you preparing for your descendants? It's a little hard for you to imagine if you're young having even having descendants. But most of you will have descendants. And what's the legacy? What are they going to say about you when you're gone? Sometimes funerals are a little funny. You know, sometimes, most of the time when you go to a funeral, people try real hard to say some nice things. And sometimes the funerals can be kept rather long because this was really a quality person and there's a lot of people who have something really good to say. Sometimes they're a little short because nobody can say nice things, can't think of very many nice things to say, but they show up anyway. And so the testimonial period is rather brief. <laughs> well, the question, you know, just imagine your mind. If, if, if you were to be dead today and we're going to have your funeral on Saturday, what are people going to say about you? What are they going to say? You know, I don't, what's the legacy you're going to leave? All right, now, if you're sowing wisely, I'd like to go to the last portion of this dis discussion. It seems to me that if you are sowing wisely, 
that you can be hopeful of a good harvest in your own life despite the calamities that are looming over our nation and American Christianity. Now, I really do think there are some potential calamities looming over our nation. I happen to think that 2024 is likely to see a constitutional crisis. And that, in terms of politics, I think that we're going to have a constitutional crisis. And uh, I, I could be wrong, and really I hope I am wrong, but I believe that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination, and the, uh, there's going to be a lot of, um, uh, the, the Democrats are just not going to let him in, have, have, they're, they're just not going to let him in. They're not going to leave office. One way or another, there's going to be a constitutional crisis, I think, in 2024. So stay tuned. It might be interesting to watch a year from now. So whatever happens in our nation as our republic goes through its death phase, and whatever is happening in Christianity in America, that doesn't necessarily mean that you and I need to be gloomy about our own lives. And I think you really shouldn't. I think that we, there's something we need to remember about God, about judgment, and about examples from Scripture I'd like to call your attention to, and, and, and your own life and your own placement and what you're doing. And really, m more hinges on what you're doing than what you might think. So let me just give you a few thoughts here. God's judgment in Scripture is often discreet, precise, and particular. God's judgment is often discreet, precise, particular. Now, as a classroom teacher, sometimes things arise like this. Someone does something wrong. Maybe someone throws a spitball across the room, and it's very distracting, and it's a big, it's a big splat. And you think, well, I guess I better do something. I can't be having that. So you say, who threw that spitball? And nobody fesses up. <laughs> well, what do you do? Well, occasionally teachers will just say, all right, everybody's going to get punished since no one will fess up. So everybody has to write a little essay or something like that. Or maybe if I, when I was a coach, I would do things of a similar nature. I can't find out who the culprit on the team is that failed in a given task and say, okay, Everybody's going to do 10 push-ups, or everybody's going to run five laps around the gym, or something much worse. Well, probably more than 10 push-ups, but you get the point. You punish everybody. Now, we do that sometimes. Even parents have to fall back on that, even though a good parent's going to try not to, most likely. But once in a while, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. But you see, God is much smarter than we are. He's better than the best teacher, and he's smarter than the best parent. God can be discreet, He can be precise, and He can be particular, and we have examples of this in Scripture. If you think about that, God's judgment isn't necessarily one big sloppy judgment for everybody. It's not. Sometimes it is, but often it's not. So just look at a couple of quick examples. The plagues in Egypt drew important distinctions. There are at least two plagues that the children of Israel did not suffer from. In Exodus chapter number 9, you remember all of the various plagues, I'm sure. But you'll discover in Exodus chapter 9, if we look at verses 3 and 4, there was a plague that was a disease. They called it a grievous moraine. 
And while the Egyptian cattle were dying from a grievous murrain, it says, there shall be nothing die of all that is the children of Israel's. God's judgment was, in this case, more precise. It was particular. It was discreet. There were distinctions. In Exodus chapter 10, it tells us in verses 21 through 23, a unique plague known as the plague of darkness. It says that Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven. There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. They did not suffer. There's another example in Scripture. We don't it's a very famous example. It's a super famous example. It's one of the most famous judgments in all of the Bible. The judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it tells us in Genesis chapter 15 and 16, in the days of Abraham, it says that the iniquity of the Amorites was not full. But then it turns around and makes a judgment, brings down a judgment just a couple of chapters later upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But only Sodom and Gomorrah. All of the other cities in the land of Canaan, were spared because the iniquity was not yet full. God made an important distinction. God was particular with that judgment. It tells us in Amos chapter 9, there's going to be a future judgment. You might like to look at this one. Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 8, describes how God is going to make a, bring forward a judgment prior to some really wonderful things happening, like the regathering of Israel back again to the land of uh, their fathers and so forth. But let's break into Amos 9, beginning of verse 8. It says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Now, if you stop reading right there, you would think, well, this is a general judgment in which everybody is going to suffer. But keep reading. It says, saving, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. I will not dis- utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. God is going to sift and sort with caution, wisdom, and supernatural knowledge to bring the judgment upon those who He believes deserve the judgment and preserve those that do not. God is going to sort the righteous and the wicked with precision. With precision. So the first thing I want to throw out there, and I want you to understand that we can be hopeful of a good harvest for the first practical reason, just simply by recognizing that the living evidence, that that, that, that is God's judgment is often discreet, it's precise and particular. Now second, the second reason I think we can have very hopeful about a, a harvest in the future that can be very good in your life. It can be good in the life of your family. It can be excellent in the life of 
the congregation of which you're a part, the fellowship with which you uh, associate with. It can be very excellent, and that's because for many of us, we have living evidence of hope, and that living evidence is really powerful. Uh, it, it's right before us. It's among us. And, and, and for, I mean, for example, I don't know if your camera will get this, but take this little girl right here. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. I don't know this little girl very well. She's pretty young. She doesn't know me. Not very well. This is Natalia. Natalia is a wonderful little girl. She's, she, amongst all these other little children here, they're the living evidence, the absolute living evidence that we have good reason that we should have excellent hope for the future. And so when we consider sowing and reaping, the question is, what are we sowing? Well, we're going to reap what we sow, we're going to reap where we sow, we're going to reap in proportion to what we sow, and we're going to reap in a different season, a different season of life. Now, the sowing that's been done with Natalia regarding Nathan and his dear wife, that sowing is going to reap a wonderful harvest. And this is going to be the harvest, and it's going to come in a different season of life. So Rochelle, as her mother, the harvest is going to come for Rochelle, and Rochelle is a, a little more mature. And this girl is going to be a big girl one day, aren't you, Natalia? All right, there you go. Back up with you. Thank you. Thank you, Natalia. We have the living evidence of it with us. And finally, in terms of sowing and reaping, uh, we do have a couple of really important promises regarding God's people. I'd like to read two passages as I close. Jeremiah chapter 31. Tells us that the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now this, if we look at this, we're going to discover that this is a love that God has for His people, His people Israel. Now God does not have an everlasting love for the American Republic. He doesn't have an everlasting love for the British Empire. doesn't have an everlasting love for any political institution that we have developed. But He does have a love for His people. God doesn't have an everlasting love and an everlasting promise with an institution known as the Cumberland Presbyterian Church or with the Southern Baptist Convention or with any other institution of that nature. But He does have an everlasting love for His Israelite people who might be a part of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church or the Southern Baptist Convention or the British Empire or the United States of America. It's the people. And that is where God's everlasting covenant and promise is. And that's worthy of a lot of reflection. God assures us of this. And so, in Ezekiel chapter 37, I'd like to close. God reminds us that He says, I've got a covenant of peace with you. I have an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. And that everlasting covenant will not end. And so for us, the question is, is going to really boil down at this Feast of Tabernacles. And we think about sowing and reaping and harvest and this harvest festival. What kind of a harvest can we expect 
based on what we're sowing at this time. And are we sowing wisely? What are we sowing? Where are we sowing? In what proportion are we sowing? And then, of course, if we do those things wisely, we can expect to reap in a different season an excellent harvest. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your kindness and patience. May God bless you all.